Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Kindness, aka Adam Bainbridge, has a deep understanding of how music ties into our identities and ways of seeing the world. His white British father and Indian mother fed him disco, Motown, and soul in his childhood in a small town in England before he broke away to live in cities as diverse as London, Philadelphia, Berlin, and Paris. His travels have informed his acclaimed work, two solo albums as Kindness, a longtime collaborative relationship with Dev Hines, aka Blood Orange, as well as work with Kalila, Robin, and Philippe Zadar of Cassius. Deeply interested in how musical cultures relate and inform one another, Kindness's outlook is a breath of fresh air in an often stifling world. And in this in-depth lecture, hosted by Lauren Martin at the 2015 Red Bull Music Academy in Paris, his stories prove touching and important for musicians and non-musicians alike. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. So please help me welcome Adam Bainbridge, a.k.a. Kindness. Thanks. Um, I'd like to start with a difficult question. What do the words, where are you from, mean to you? Okay. um, Well, can I just preface one thing by saying that I was a little bit nervous about this, so I went out and got drunk last night. And it's not helping today because I really thought that I would be able to just come in here and talk lucidly about things, but it's it's going to okay, be harder thanks, than man. I thought. I'm just I'm telling you. Um, so I might have had a good answer to that once upon a time. Uh, I'm from Peterborough in the east of England, and it's a small town, and it wasn't a very fun place to grow up. It was kind of uh, very small towny, you know, there wasn't much music, there wasn't much culture, there definitely wasn't a real sense of uh, multiculturalism or of alternative culture. And I guess that was important to me because my mother's Indian, my father is English. So I was growing up mixed race in a town that didn't really like non-white people full stop and was further confused by mixed race people. And yeah, it was a good place. There's, there's a quote by a uh, Robert Bapelthorpe, the photographer, who says that growing up in Queens, he was talking about Queens in New York, he said, growing up in Queens was great because it was the perfect place to leave. And that's kind of how I feel about Vera. It's a good quote. Um, you mentioned that your mother and your father, um, even if you feel out of place in a place, the people that are around you are kind of the most important to you. Um, your family's got very strong musical and political kind of stories. Uh, could you tell us about the people you grew up with? Well, I I guess I can see what where, where you you're potentially trying to get me to go. Uh, so my dad was a DJ in his twenties, uh, not a massively famous one, but I've seen pictures of him, and it looks like the peak of Italo with the the kind of crazy DJ booth with the lights around it, and it's kind of cool because his record collection is behind him or maybe it's the nightclub record collection which was the old thing you know it's like paradise garage all the records were behind and anyone could pick them out and dj i mean unless you know or larry levan would 
probably kneecap you before he actually let you do that, but it it was it was an option. And so seeing my dad in that kind of environment, I was like, oh, okay, you know, it it was real. It took a few years to get to that point. Like when when we were younger, me and my sister would just roll our eyes and be like, yeah, of course you're a DJ, right? Yeah, what kind of music were you playing? And even then, not really understanding some of the tracks that he tried to put us onto. Like he he used to play the 19 minute album cut of uh, By the Time It Gets Phoenix by Isaac Hayes, which is just an organ drone with like a heartbeat kick drum underneath it. And then it kicks in at like 16 minutes. I was like, how did you play this in the club? He's like, well, you have to remember in the 1970s, people were smoking a lot of weed. (laughs) You know, like they weren't necessarily dancing all the time. I was like, oh, that kind of DJ. All right, I get it. And then on my mum's side, well, my mum was also heavily into music and it came in useful when I was a teenager because she told an anecdote about how she used to spend all of her money on records, her food money, her money to li- actually buy groceries. And then I, I would go to HMV, spend all my money on vinyl, and she'd be like, you out buying records again? I'd be like, does this seem familiar to you? Uh, so I'd get away with buying records then. And yeah, she was heavily into jazz. She was brought up in South Africa until she was 14 to Indian and Malay parents. And then uh, kind of the worst of apartheid started happening. And my grandmother was arrested by the police for collaborating with her lodger, who was then thrown from the 10th floor of the police building in Johannesburg and died. Uh, and my grandmother was in interrogation in the next room when this happened, so she 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 remembers that going down. And after they killed him, they put her, a 50-year-old woman, in jail for five years, followed by five years of house arrest. And at that point in time, my mother and her siblings were just... But they had no choice. They kind of had to leave, you know, like your... Uh, their father was dead, so it's like, well... The family is kind of being forcibly broken up uh, and they all came to Europe. So my mum and my aunt to, and my two aunts to the United Kingdom and my uncle to Sweden. And yeah, I think that has definitely left a mark on me and my family and how I perceive things like race and kind of social justice even. Uh, there are friends who are going to watch this and it's going to raise a wry smile because uh, I I guess I have a reputation amongst my friends at least for being somewhat overly zealous about these things. But I think when it comes from that family background, at one point you start to understand why it matters and why you're not just going to kind of passively stand by and watch people display racism or prejudice or whatever, whatever might happen. So yeah, to this day, I won't take that bullshit basically. Actually, the quote about um, about Queens, like it was a great place to leave. Before you left this town in England that you didn't really like and you didn't really feel attached to, you might have had music as like, you know, the classic escapist idea. I can't imagine the streets of Peterborough were really popping, you know. What were you listening to at the time that gave you a sense of a space where you could explore and, and belong in? I think I've talked about this with other mixed race and British Asian kids and I think we found that white music culture and by that I mean sort of mainstream Indian rock and roll kind of didn't have anything for us. It didn't speak to us in any way. 
So as much as I was going to uh, kind of underground shows in Peterborough, going to like see hardcore and punk and sort of noise music, at one point I was like, nah, this is some weird white people shit. I don't really understand it. Um, is there something else? And funnily enough, it's funny that you mentioned Westwood. I mean, yeah, it was mainstream hip hop and R&B and eventually garage and drum and bass and jungle and those things that, to be fair, mainstream British radio, Radio 1, were doing a pretty good job of in the 90s. I mean, even John Peel, to a certain extent, would play one of those awful noise records followed by a jungle tune. You'd be like, all right, John, nice. Okay, yeah, that's diversity. I like it. But, um, and I mean, Peterborough did have a tiny bit of that trickling through. I remember for about three weeks, someone tried to open a record shop that only sold garage records. And I go in and I go, oh, yeah, there's, there's that big garage tune coming through. Uh, can I can I buy it here? And they go, no, mate, why do you want to buy it here? It's, it's 12 quid on white label here. It's going to be an HMV for two pounds next week. I'd be like, what? <laughs> Don't you want me to spend my money? And uh, yeah, that's why record shops didn't stick around very long in Peterborough. But uh, I don't know. It could have been garage. It could have been hip hop. It could be house music as well. Oh, no, let's just play this. This really reminds me of growing up in Peterborough. We'd love for you to hear the song that was played at this point in the lecture, but unfortunately, the law says that we can't. Sorry about that. If you're interested in checking out the music played in this lecture, we do have full transcripts and notes from all of our lectures up on redbullmusicacademy.com. For now, let's go back to Couch Wisdom. If you were trying to buy garage records in Peterborough, what was it about that era of R&B that really spoke to you? I mean, I guess I think there's a direct lineage between this kind of like bad boy records era of R&B and sampling and production and what I do now. I mean, I guess I'm trying to work more on a like alternative side of production, but they were doing such smart and hooky kind of sampling. So I think it was just the, the my eyes opening to what, what sampling and production could be, I guess. And at the time... There were other things like uh, Stardust and Daft Punk where I started to understand that these records were made up of samples rather than played instrumentation. And I think when you don't have a great studio, when you don't have instruments, the option to sample stuff becomes like a kind of freedom, especially when you're flying under the radar and you can still get away with sampling stuff and not clearing it. So, but yeah. Okay, so once you started to absorb these kind of ideas of how to make music through sampling, when did you start making music? Like, what were the first kind of instances where you felt that you could do something like this? Um, so I went to Berlin in around 2003, 2004, and a friend of mine called Ramsey uh, saw me struggling to make music in GarageBand, and he said, this, this is new software called Ableton, you should try it. And that was like, Ableton version 3, where you still had to manually warp mark every piece of music you were working with, where everything was kind of janky and off, but it was amazing. It was it was so intuitive and so different from music software that I tried in the past. And I, I guess I just started working then. But I was working more making DJ mixes because I didn't really understand how you produced music. So I think layering... Uh, different elements from different tracks in a DJ mix made me start thinking, well, I guess what I'm doing is sampling. If I'm taking this drum part and then fading it into this four-bar loop from the beginning of this record and then 
blending it with this vocal, I could just make songs this way. And eventually, uh, living back in London, that's what I started doing. I was living in a house with uh, with Sam and Rory from a short-lived British band called Test Icicles, which my good friend Dev Hines was also part of. And uh, at one point, well, we used to play PlayStation in the evening and we thought that the sound effects in Quake or whatever we were playing were kind of lame. So I was downloading much more outrageous explosions and gunshots and nonsense from LimeWire and then just layering them on top of the game as we were playing so that it was a little more bombastic. And uh, they were like, wait, this sounds great. Why don't you do this over our shows? I was like, wait, what do you mean? You know, play like gunfire and explosions and sort of like the air horns. We've always wanted air horns. I was like, you want air horns, all right? Like, so I think the next day we left on the road and I was now the DJ. And that was fun. That was interesting. That was my first experience of sleeping on the floor while the rest of the band sleep in the beds. But uh, it was it was still a lot of fun. And it was really nice just to be taken along on what was a short-lived roller coaster ride for those guys. Um, and that's how I got to know Dev as well, is, is that was quite an intense baptism of fire into their world. But so getting back to London after these tours, that band was blowing up at the time and they had all of these remix offers. And people were offering them crazy money to do remixes and they didn't have time to do it or maybe they didn't want to do it. And I said, look guys, why don't I do the remixes and then we just say that you did the remix? Why not? And they were like, yeah, all right. Split it 50-50? I was like, done. So I was doing these remixes and I guess that got me into production properly. I started to think, well, I can do this. Maybe I could put my mind to it and it could be a career. Little did I know that was just going to be my first attempt at making a career in music. Because I think I'm going to preface the next part of the story by saying, if anyone here is doing this for the first time and it's not quite going the way you wanted it to go, don't be discouraged. Like I quit music once and I went away and I had to reset my whole life and get my head straight. And then I came back with a different name and stuff is working out in a kind of roller coaster way of its own. But maybe sometimes you have to have a failed first project to get to the second project that actually is who you want to be or the sound you want to have. Test Icicles were also collaborating a lot with uh, Grime MCs at the time. And that ended up being my first release proper was uh, Test Icicles remix uh, with Rough Squad. And... That was really a moment. I mean, that, that the thing for, was the thing about living in London 2003, 4, 5, 6, is that what was happening in Grime, um, um, Black British music was just insanely exciting. And it was way more progressive and a lot more futuristic than anything anyone had ever heard before. I mean, it had been years since, I mean, the mid-90s and, and Jungle and Drum and Bass, but it had been years since I think any electronic music had just come out of nowhere or seemingly come out of nowhere and, and kind of brought this whole new sonic template, which I guess we still uh, hear echoes of today, like in uh, Night Slugs and Fate of Mind and other people. Uh, I mean, it it's crazy to me. I hear like Mike Q edits of Grime tracks. I'm just like, well, boring Grime. I guess it was going to happen one of these days. But um, 
And Night Slugs is a crew that you're really um, intimate with. Could you yeah. explain to those in the room who might not be so familiar with the climate uh, of black music in London at the time when they were starting and what you've learned from the Night Slugs crew? Because it, I guess hanging out with them is quite an education sometimes. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, myself and Alex Sushon, uh, Bok Bok, have been close for a number of years and he was around at the same time that I was putting out these first productions and he was very supportive and I think we had a good dialogue about music at that moment in time. Um, what's kind of fucked up is after this impending tumble comes and I didn't feel good about the music I've made anymore, um, I just stopped going to those raves and listening to that music. And I remember one day we were having a, a text conversation. He's like, you coming down Night Slugs? And I was like, man, I'm, I'm too old for that. I just don't understand. Uh, I don't think it's for me. And he got angry with me, and to this day, he was like, "You're such a loser. Why would why would you, why would you just shut off like a whole side of your musical personality? Partly because you got burned. Like he understands that. Like I didn't feel good about the music, but it's kind of taken me years to slowly get back to that place. And now it's great. I mean, I, I'm actively working on music with with Alex, and uh, you know, I. I get to spend time with Girl Unit and with Jam City and just uh, kind of hear the exciting places that they're taking music. Because I, I, Jack, Jam City especially, I just think is, again, pushing the envelope so much with with, uh, with sound design and, and songwriting and production. And uh, yeah. Can I just talk about the bad shit in 2005 now? For a sure, second? go ahead. All right. I was going to ask you, but if you're happy and willing, I, I want to get it out of my system. I think once I've once I've got this off my chest, I'll be ready to uh, go to a happier place. So, 2005 and 2006 in London, I just associate with being completely toxic in my mind. Now I'm just like that was a bad time, and New Rave was just a sideshow to that, but it was kind of part of it. Because I think New Rave, if it stands for anything, I don't know that anyone in this room actually ever listened to that music or followed it, but it was kind of like a bastardized indie version of rave music. So it would just be like guys in fluorescent trousers and American apparel, like shell suits, playing kind of like breakbeat stuff with air horns and, and uh, sort of sampled phrases from old rave records. And it was horrible. Like it was the worst music of all time. And I was living there at this moment, trying to be open-minded, trying to be positive about music and just thinking, God, I feel like such a fake. Like I have to go to these parties and keep a smile on my face when I see this absolute douchebag walking in the door who is kind of destroying everything about pop and alternative music and this is also where it comes into identity and, and things like sexuality is I just feel like uh, Peaches said that this in an interview the other day. She said, new rave music was electro clash with everything gay sucked out of it. And I mean, I liked electro clash on a, a songwriting level. Again, like the production of it grated on me after a while, but it was at its heart originally a queer scene and it had a kind of diversity and open-mindedness even in its production like the producers making that music and new rave was 90 percent straight bros that had seen this opportunity to get famous fast and do it by 
adopting all of the signifiers of kind of an underground and at the time a queer culture. I mean, there were parties called things like Boombox and Family, which were 90% gay men dressed that way. And then bands like the Claxons and Hadouken and stuff just came in and were like, all right, we'll have that. So I just thought it was a bad time. It didn't feel good. And then what made it worse for me is that I was kind of struggling with my identity and my sexuality at the time. And there was a blog called Style Slut, and I'm going to name the guy now. There's this guy called Donald Crunk. That's a pseudonym. That's not his real name. I'm not going to say his real name, but he still writes under that pseudonym. And back then in 2005, 2006, he started this blog, which was kind of recounting what was going on in London, new rave, crime, hip hop, alternative bands. But this blog was the most virulent, homophobic, racist, misogynistic, transphobic piece of shit I've ever seen in my life. It's still online if you want to go back and look at it. And one day this guy decided he was going to pick on me. And he started talking about me in homophobic and transphobic terms. And I was just like, wait, what? Where did this come from? And even more fucked up is rather than being angry at him, I was like, wait, how did he know? Like, how do people know this? Like, shit, what am I going to do? I can't be a grime producer if people know I'm gay. People know I'm queer. Like, what? what's if they know? Fuck. And it, what took it another step deeper was that at the time, again, with questions about identity, I was like researching hormones. Like I was thinking about going there. And this guy is not just abusing me in homophobic terms, he's abusing me in transphobic terms. I'm like, what the fuck? I got to get out. And overnight, I just, I shut down. I stopped my music. I left London. I was scared. I was actually scared. I was like, I, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be in a place where people can be in a position of power and have these platforms, widely read platforms, with a shitload of positive comments on every article from other people that seem to appreciate this kind of like base, racist, misogynist abuse. And honestly, to this day, I can't believe that this guy got away with this shit. Like, that's why I want to talk about it now. This guy got picked by the BBC to be one of the panelists on what they call their annual like sound of which is music people from the industry talking about who they think is going to be the next artist for the next year upcoming I mean it's it's bullshit it's always very commercial artists and it's kind of rigged but for me it was more like the industry and the media could take one look at this guy's blog and see how toxic it is and yet they embraced him and his writing and his thought process. And they give him a platform where he, he can now be influencing what happens in music, where he can choose like the next artist coming up. I'm just like, that's not okay. We shouldn't give people that power to fuck up people. Like, it, if, if you are a racist, if you're homophobic, you shouldn't be allowed to work in the music industry, full stop. Because the music industry, uh, and this goes back to like, you know, blues and Motown, the music industry is based on the talents of non-white people, of people of queer identity. That's where so much of good music comes from. I mean, house music comes from disco music, which comes from black gay men. And so how can you allow people that don't like those things and want to go on record saying how much they don't like those things have any influence within that arena? For me, that's not possible. And that's part of what we really need to solve now because I look around this room and I see I see non-white faces, I see women and I'm happy to see you here, but I'm going to tell you it's going to be tough. 
it's still not a smooth ride, especially when even in the younger generation that's working in music and management and record labels now, they're still predominantly straight guys, straight white guys. And they have a, a language and a vocabulary amongst themselves. They don't even know how to talk to you or talk about you or understand your issues. And I've spoken about this, like, especially with black women, black women in the industry, they're like, well, my manager's a white guy. And I have to sit him down and say, these are things that I need to see you actively defending and pushing back against. And if you don't do that, we can't work together. And the guy will go, oh, funny, I, I didn't realize that might be an issue. And she's like, exactly. All right, ran over. That'll do. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. I can see your worried Thanks. eyes to like your colleague. No, like, no, not at all. Just, just thanks for being so honest. I really, no, I cool. and everyone else really appreciate it. Um, How, what happens next in the sequence? Well, what happens next for you? You left. You left London. Yeah. You you cut it all off. It was a bad time. What did you do to to make amends with yourself? And what had happened? Um. Well, I mean, it. it has to get worse before it gets better. My my father died the same year, so I was just like, "All right, I'm out. I'm out of music. I'm kind of out of life." I went to work back at the Hot Point Factory in Peterborough, the the washing machine people. Washing machine factory. <laughs> and I said to my mum about it the other day. I was like, "You remember when I used to work at Hot Point to make money?" She's like, "Yeah, I kind of remember that. You must have been so bored." I was like, "Mum, I was asleep." I'd, after a few days, I realised that the woman working in the in our porter cabin, as our boss didn't care, and so I would come in and earlier and earlier every day, I'd just put my head down on the desk and sleep until someone woke me up and was like, "Come on, mate, it's not cool because you've got to do some work." But uh, so I kind of reset that way. That was quite a good way to just start afresh, and I saved some money, and then I moved back to Berlin. And I could, I could just condense this a little bit. In Berlin, at that moment in time, the climate was good. I fell in love again. I was happy. I had a new relationship. Uh, and I was like, all right, maybe I'm just going to make music for me, for fun. Like, I'm not going to play it to anyone. It's just for me. And I started messing around. And one of the first things that came out of it was my version of Swinging Party by The Replacements. And I was like, hmm all right, you might be onto something. I mean, I'd never sung before in my life. To this day, I'm going to put my hand up, more real talk. I know I'm a pretty mediocre singer. I'm not a great singer. I'm a producer. I'm a music fan. I'm not a singer. It kind of sucks to have to play shows in front of 10,000 people. But, uh, you know, there's other, you know, Taylor Swift can sing. Uh, but, so... So shady. <laughs> She deserves it. Um, and what was funny about that, I was like, because I've been making these productions thinking maybe I can find other vocalists to sing on them. Like, I didn't think I would ever end up singing on them, which to this day might not have been the smartest idea, but it started coming. I was like, all right, well, the melody would kind of be this, and then I guess I could, I'll just finish it. And I ended up with uh, three or four tracks, and I sent them to two places. This is quite funny. I sent them to Red Bull Music Academy, didn't get in. <laughs> but look, guys, what it what it did do what it did do is it gave me this amazing deadline where I was thinking, what am I making this music for? And then 
there was this submission deadline uh, where they wanted X amount of music and this kind of brief about who you are and your personality and writing that helped me figure out what my music was and finishing the tracks for it helped me figure, figure out what my music was so to this day it doesn't really matter that I didn't get in it got it got me going and then the other place I went was I got an email from a label that I'd actually been dealing with in my grime days and they said we've heard this track on MySpace we'd like to put it out and that led to a seven inch single coming out on Moshi Moshi Records and off the back of that like things just started happening um Another thing that I thought about talking to you guys today was that I wanted to maybe break down some stuff that might happen to you as you come into the music industry, if you get signed, if you're going to put out a record, and stuff that doesn't normally get talked about. I, d I just think as much as it might be slightly boring, it could also be really valuable because if anyone had sat me down when this stuff was happening to me and just gone, that's a red flag, I might not be in the position I am in today, which we'll also get onto later, but... So off the back of putting out this record in an independent label, some majors came calling. And apparently what had happened was that 2009 was a terrible year for music. There was just no music worth signing. And all of the A&R guys have a signing budget and they have to assign a certain amount of money to artists within a year. They have to. They get in trouble if they don't. So kind of October 2009 comes around and I start getting all these phone calls and I'm like, wait, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> and I think it was just they hadn't signed anyone that year. So they were like, all right, this guy's getting some heat on the internet. Let's sign him. And things got really out of hand. People started kind of bargaining off of each other and the money starts getting higher and higher and higher. And he's interesting. It doesn't matter to me anymore. It's going to sound completely outrageous because no one get signed for these sums, at least not as an alternative artist anymore. I got signed for £100,000 by Polydor and £150,000 by Universal Publishing for my publishing, which is a shitload of money. But I didn't know the reality of that, which is that 50% goes to tax because you've reached a certain threshold in the year. 20% goes to your manager. So of £250,000, you're left with 30% which then has to last you the three or four years until your record comes out. You're not getting any more money. And something that seems like a ray of light coming down from the heavens is actually is way more practical than that. That's just that's kind of like a regular salary to keep you going. So I can't imagine what it is now when people are getting ripped off for label deals and for publishing. I mean, I know people getting signed for £5,000 now. And here's another bit of real talk. If some independent label, naming no names, is coming at you for £5,000 to sign your publishing and you've never put out any music, but you you believe in your music and you know it's going to go somewhere, don't do it. There's a guy at one of the labels who used to look up new band of the day on The Guardian and as soon as it came out, get on the phone and call up that band and be like, I'll sign your publishing, £5,000. Same thing. Do you know why they were doing it? Because they got tax breaks on it. They didn't do it because they believed in anyone's music, because the label that owned that publishing company, by doing that, they didn't have to pay the £30 million of tax that they had outstanding. Now that's kind of fucked up. So, yeah. So where do you fit into all of this? Because you, your, your first album was released independently. No, it was released on a major. It was released on the major. Sorry, the first release. Sorry, yeah. not the first album. And then you went to no, a major. The first album was also released on the major. Uh-huh. Someone didn't do their fact-checking. 
<laughs> Don't be shady. I deserve it. I deserve it. I, I know more about you than you do, sweetheart. I okay. Right. It's so shady. I'm not. I'm not. Come on. <laughs> right. So whatever the hell you put yeah, out, whatever right? Put out Who cares at this label. point? You went between indies and majors with varying success in quite a short frame of time. Apart from these lessons that you want to tell, what did, this is all like a hindsight if you're telling us this yeah. now, you know, what were you doing at the time within that world where you went, no, I can't do this. I have to go back doing this myself and I have to figure it out all myself. Well, I got dropped. That's what happened. You know, well, obviously you do know more about you than I do. So. <laughs> no, I mean, again, this, I should probably just play some music and talk about making music in a minute. But yeah, at, the, at the same time, no, but seriously, there's there's going to be people in this room who are going to get approached to do similar things to what happened to me. And no one is ever going to sit you down and, and break this down to you because part of it is admitting that you were foolish and, and sort of you didn't know what was going on. Like, I just assumed that I could trust my management, which is also a foolish thing to do, and that I could trust the best intentions of an industry to be putting out music for the right reasons. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Like in some places, yes. But yeah, I mean, album one didn't really go the way that the label wanted to. They sacked both of my A&R men that had signed me. Um, oh shit, maybe that was a bell moment. Uh, and that's another thing. If if you were to sign a contract with a major, there's a thing called a key man clause that's, that's kind of empowering for you, which says that the person that signed you and believes in you, if they leave the company, you have the option to leave as well. And I think that's really important because I can think of other artists this has happened to where you get signed by a big label, maybe even get signed by an independent. And the guy that was really your champion and, and could take the record, the finished records, the head of the label and go, this is what we're doing with this. If they're out the door for whatever, for whatever reason, you no longer have a champion. And you're just you're literally just a CDR in the corner of the office. And you don't want to be that person. You You need someone who's there every day just saying like, all right, things didn't go away the way we wanted with this first video, with this first single, like, let's, let's keep going. So, uh, yeah, I got dropped by Polydor and Universal, but in a way that was a blessing. Like, it was a genuine blessing. And one of the things my ex-manager did bless him was he went into Polydor and he just said, look, we don't really think you engage with us on this record. You let go of the people that were going to work on it with Adam. This is going to sound crazy, but we want the rights back give us the master rights back to the record because when you sign a, a contract with a label they get to own uh, the copyrights and the master rights kind of in perpetuity and for whatever reason the guy said alright, masters are yours we'll give it back to you so now I own my first record Which is great. Yeah. yeah and that's that to be honest for all the major label things that deserves applause in itself <laughs> if you actually win the music that never happens, yeah. that's like winning the lottery yeah. and to this day owning the master for my first record, now owning the master for my second record and licensing it means that I can survive. Like, I, I don't make a lot of money, but stuff like streaming, if you own the master rights, because that's really where the money comes from, from streaming, you take home like 90% of streaming income. If, if you're signed to a label like Universal, maybe if you're signed to an independent, you're taking 5% of that 90% home, you're not getting paid. Like, no wonder you get these these sort of checks in at the end of the month at like Spotify 3P because it's 5% of 90%. So yeah, where you can, if you can 
self-finance a record and self-release it, do it. I mean, look around. Like people are getting huge off of self-made, self-promoted music. If you have a vision, unless you think that a label is going to help you catapult yourself to the next level, it's not necessary. It really isn't. Like you can be your own team. You're the best PR, the best A&R, the best stylist, the best uh, musical director you have because you have all of those talents within you. Like it, it, it might seem scary or maybe you don't want that responsibility, but honestly, you could find that team and if you can find it, more power to you because a good team is, is the best thing to have of all. But it's so hard and you can't necessarily trust the people that you're even close to in terms of, of a work life and... Maybe we'll come to that later. Okay, right. Now I'm going to do some real talk. Let's talk about some of your music. All right, all okay, right. Great. Okay, great. Um, could we please run uh, the first video? No, that wasn't you. Who was that and what was that song? That was Trouble Funk and the song was called Still Smoking. And uh, that performance was from, funnily enough, from Sunderland in 1986, I think. And uh, Trouble Funk got signed to Island Records and they were one of the few go-go bands to actually start uh, releasing music outside of DC and internationally and to also like gain a kind of worldwide recognition. Yeah, and does anyone know what go-go music is? I was just about to say it would be really great if you could explain it because it is such like a regional sound. Yeah, go-go is basically live music that's performed in clubs in, uh, in the DC area where, and it was started by a guy called Chuck Brown, where the band plays continuously for about two hours and it's all based on this one groove. Uh, the, drum the drum beat doesn't really change. Some of the percussion elements on top, like the congas and the cowbells change, but the drum break is fundamentally the same on every song. There's a load of bands and, and Trouble Funk are just one of a number of amazing um, DC bands that are still going, actually. But uh, what happened to Go-Go is that it just it couldn't get out of its regional scene. And it also doesn't really work on record. Like to this day, I have a lot of Gogo records. They, they don't deliver 1% of what it is to see a band play live and, and uh, communicate with the audience because a lot of it's based on audience participation as well. So once you found this track through like digging through LimeWire and finding this Amory record, you went on to make a track that samples yeah. that track. Yeah. But it's not just a case of sampling and how a lot of people in this room might make a record through sampling. You actually went out there and met them and worked with them on this track. Could you talk about that experience? And within that, where do you kind of differentiate between just finding a track and sampling it and asking for permission and then actually seeking out the people and working with them on the new record? Because that's what you did. Right. Um, I mean, I'm all for it. I, I was telling someone the other day that uh, everyone I sampled on the first record I ended up meeting and working with. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a hot tip. Like, sample some of your heroes and maybe it will happen. <laughs> and uh, with Trouble Funk, I actually met them later when I wanted to make the music video. The, the studio version of this we did from, uh, like, a high-quality WAV file of the song. And then... Me and Philippe did a, all the production here in Paris. Like the first record that I worked on with Philippe Stahl from Cassius. But when the, the song was done and uh, it was time to make a video for it, I thought, well, this would be kind of nuts. What if I could get the band that wrote the song and made the audio that I sampled from 
what if I asked them to replay the song with the new hook and the new lyrics and the new arrangement? And uh, they were up for it, so I went out to DC and did that with them. But uh, yeah, amazing people, great guys, just funny how stuff happens like that. So that experience of, of working with Trouble Funk and performing with them and having you present to them a new version of something that they'd worked on many years before, that's not the only kind of way you collaborate with people. You're very hands-on. Who else have you collaborated with? And how has those various processes like shaped what you do individually? Wow. I mean, on, on this new record, I guess... Uh that was kind of my collaboration record. That was that was where I decided to get it all out of my system and just work with everyone. Um, and I guess predominantly with uh, Kilella, uh, with Dev, uh, with Robin, and then also on an equally creative and uh, in terms of contribution, just great session people. You know, people that I've met now through the music community who are just, they play on the top of their game and... I, I kind of think uh, I think a really soulful professional player can just do something incredible. We, you know, there's maybe a taboo around using people that uh, do kind of gigs, but I mean, they did it on Motown, they did it on Phil Spector, they did it on uh, you know, like chic with studio mu musicians. It doesn't mean that uh, I'm coming out isn't a great record. So yeah, collaboration has definitely become a good way to just, I don't know, kind of hopefully bring the best of what I do, which I guess I think is more on the production side, and then the best of what other people do, which is normally like songwriting and incredible vocals. And this is a good example of uh, hearing someone's music for the first time and just saying, oh, okay, I have to work with this person. Sure. Okay, let's play that then. Now, who is Kalela for somebody that might be unfamiliar? We've heard her voice, but who is the woman behind the voice? Um, Kalela is uh, probably my favourite living vocalist. And she's uh, a black woman of Ethiopian heritage, originally from uh, Washington, D.C. in the States. And I just remember hearing that track probably on SoundCloud and thinking, holy shit, mm -hmm. you know. I will move heaven and earth. Like, how do I work with that voice? And uh, I guess what was nice, either serendipity or, or just, you know, it still took a bit of work, but she was collaborating on uh, her her first release with a lot of the Night Slugs and Fate of Mind guys at the time. And so I remember just putting an email into someone and saying, you're working with this Kalala girl, right? And they were like, yeah, yeah. She should come, she come meet you in LA. She's living in LA. And literally... The first day we met, we cut some vocals that ended up being on, on my album, mm -hmm. which I don't normally do. I don't. I like to get to know people first and maybe hang out with them and get drunk. And then once you've been drunk together and hung over together, you've kind of like, well, right, we understand. It's like a level playing field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know each other now. We've we've seen the best and the worst. So, um, and uh, but yeah, she came into the studio and I just played. All the demos I had at the time for otherness, uh, just in one long strip, mm. and we turned the lights down, and she sat at the back of the room with a handheld mic like this, uh, so no fancy vocal mic, and uh, just improvised. And once or twice, she said, "Oh, can I have that again? I'm gonna have some more melodic ideas." But like her vocal parts and ad libs on Geneva, for example. 
That is the sound of her hearing the song for the first time. There was no second take. There's no edit. It's just purely like the melody that just came from her mouth is just in the track from start to finish. Uh, our, again, not just the voice, but that kind of melodic gift. I remember just sitting there going, oh, 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 oh dear. Like, I don't know. It's a bit like Ghostbusters. You just, it's like, what if we cross the streams? <laughs> you know, the universe is going to end. So, Well, with Kalila then, uh, to be kind of, you obviously want to collaborate with the best people possible, the people that you think are the most talented or the most could have like an affinity with you rather than something in common. But you say you're really in awe of her voice, but that you don't, you don't really like your own. How do you feel singing on your own music when you're working with other singers? Like, there must be like an anxiety you have to work through with that. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, uh, I don't really have any choice. I guess, I guess the thing about. Uh, music now I don't want it to like I, you get so uncomfortable every time I go to real talk but I like the real talk it's cool part of it is that um I guess what people want from you is also partly your personality they don't just want melody or production or songwriting and so I can't really justify releasing music that I don't sing on at all I mean people might be able to hear a little of my personality in my production but if there's a song that's kind of in my vocal range I might as well have a have a go and knowing that I can kind of get some support from better vocalists to like layer things and make it sound good but yeah I mean it would sort of be dishonest of me to to not try knowing that I can even if it's not my favorite thing in the world but I think that's also part of like being honest is if if you're making music you might as well make yourself vulnerable and you might as well be open to the things that scare you I mean it was what uh the Jubes singers were talking about the other night is just like even for great singers I mean who, who was in that studio session with them what was interesting is that when when they broke it down to just the four of them alone in the room and they were trying to do the takes to the song I don't know if you picked it up but they were as shy as we were at one point they were like I don't want to sing that part don't make me ad lib you know like and and uh she was starting to hold back on the on the mic and it, it's even the best singer in the world probably has hang-ups about their voice and that's also part of collaboration I think for me like I, I was really glad that we did that session together because I think it does show people that are mainly producers the sort of all of the issues that come into producing a vocal like it is emotional and it's a little bit it it can be kind of scary and kind of intense but you just you have to be real and you have to be kind to the person and just hope that you, you get through it together and then when when it does work it it's incredible you don't just work with other vocalists though you work with um producers engineers live musicians is there anybody in particular that really stands out for you i know we have a video that you'd quite like to play of somebody that you work with yeah um and i guess What's special about this video as well is that uh, when Dev finished his uh, last album, Cupid Deluxe, we'd been hanging out in London the week before and we were looking at a picture of uh, Eddie Grant in Georgetown in Guyana and he was like, damn, that, that image is amazing. What if we just went to Georgetown and shot a video for, for, for the new record? And I was like, yeah, sounds, sounds crazy. How? He's like, I don't know, you film it. I was like, 
you know, I've only directed videos for myself, really. He's like, I don't care. Come. I was like, are you serious? And he had to leave to go back to the airport. And all the way in the cab, we were texting like, no, really, are you serious? Because this is going to cost money. Like, we can't just fly halfway across the world and make a video. And you know I only shoot on film as well because I'm an idiot. And he's like, well, for me, and you can do that if you want to. Let's show the video. Let's yeah, sure. C can we have the fourth video, please? You worked on that track and directed the video. And what I find particularly um, interesting and inspiring in regard to that is how you present yourself and the people that you work with in as a direct and honest a way as possible. And in, by directing your own videos and, and being the face of them, that's a form of empowerment within your music. Could you talk a little bit about the thoughts that you have when you um, direct these videos and, and come together like that? Yeah, I mean, working on that one, I mean, it just, it was, it was just a gift. I mean, I really thought he was joking. And then all of a sudden we're on a plane and it was intense and it was a lot of work. But imagine going to the country that your mother's from with your friend, like his mother's from for the first time and meeting his family for the first time. And the whole thing start to finish was just like, this is a trip. Like, I can't believe we're doing this. And it's nice to document it as well. I mean, in a way, I think what was more important for him was going. The fact that we got a video out of it was a bonus. And I think in terms of music video as well and self-directing, maybe there's people in the room that are starting to make music videos for their tracks. Maybe you're still doing it on your own and, and that's amazing. Don't, don't, don't think that there might necessarily be a better alternative. There are really great directors out there who do frequently make incredible pieces of work for people's tracks. But on the flip side, if you make your own video, you know how much you're spending, you get to choose what you spend it on, and there's just no reason why not to. I mean, a lot of like who you are comes across in those those kind of mediums. And also it's a, it's a financial thing again. It's like oh, a video that a production company might ask 10, 20,000 pounds for you can honestly do for a thousand pounds if you cut out all of the middlemen. And, you know, it's not in the interest of your label to tell you that because uh, you also, I think this is sort of the normal way it works, but a video is paid half by the artist and half by the label. So the label puts up the money for it, but whatever it costs, you're now in debt for half the cost of the video. Uh, which is fine if you manage to keep the budgets kind of small. Like it just adds a little bump to the, the total amount that you have to recoup to be recouped with your label. But if, and again, I, I'm not going to say who it is, but if you're a label that makes their major label artist spend half a million dollars on a video that never gets released, and you as the artist and your management were like, okay, we think this is a good idea, now you're another quarter of a million dollars in debt to the label. And I mean... You might manage to clear that, but you just got to be careful. And video can be really expensive. Equally, maybe the most uh, appropriate thing for your track could be you shooting uh, with your selfie cam on your iPhone. I mean, don't let anyone stop you do that. Speaking of expensive, you have a live band that you go on tour with. Um, I'm curious to know, as I'm sure a lot of other people are, how you go from working in a studio on your music to transferring that to a live show it's something that a lot of people do 
a lot of people have got very ambitious with. But it's a much bigger undertaking than you just packing up a van. Uh, how did you put together a band uh, that you were happy with and what were kind of the trials and tribulations of doing that to a point where you were happy? Wow, this is a Pandora's box too. No, but let's be honest though, it's not actually that easy doing this. Like, um, The reason why I have so many sort of ambivalent stories about things is because it, it isn't always like the smooth path and I guess I didn't expect it to be either. But So putting a band together, well... There are ways of putting a record on stage, especially if it is heavily electronic. And the simplest way is probably to have you as the vocalist and backing tracks. And then, honestly, from that point on, you're just adding things. So you might add a keyboard player, you might add more vocalists, a drummer, all of these things. But I think fundamentally, most live acts now start with the original studio version of the track and build on it. And that's that's what we did as well. I have a guy called Blue May, who was my musical director for the first record and this one. But then he also ended up mixing my second record. So um, shout out to Blue. And he helped me find musicians for the live band at first. Um, on this time round, I ended up working with Chris Egan and Brendan Cook, who play with uh, Solange Knowles as well. And Chris Egan also drums for Blood Orange. And yeah... Live band, a live band costs money. And I think, again, there's a lot of people in the room who, if you're a kind of solo artist, if you're starting out as a producer, you're not in a band. You're not kind of splitting the proceeds from gigs four ways with other musicians. You you are the person who gets paid for the show. And so if you're going to have uh, a band, you have to pay them wages or you should be paying them wages. And over time it's expensive i mean what can i say i i don't make money from playing live i do it to support the music that i make and i want people to see a live show and i want again it's a really good way to communicate your music to people but i don't know i think there are bands that are making money but they're like headlining festivals and they're like two notches further up the bill than i am where i am right now i'm just breaking even and i'm breaking even until <laughs> All right, here's, here's, another, here's another thing, just because I want people to understand how easy it is to go from being totally stable and having a vision for where you're going. And then one day you get a call from your accountant, your new accountant, and he says, Adam, you're technically insolvent. You're bankrupt. That happened to me two months ago. And what had happened is that after a year of touring, I had got to the same place, like not really making any profit from my live show, but I knew I'd broken even. And when you do live shows, you account in the budgets for all the fees that are going to come into playing and uh, finalizing all of these things. And there should be a line in the budget that says accountancy fees X. Well, in my budgets, I guess we'd sort of underestimate it because after all of the profits have come in and we're back at zero, my accountants turn around they're like, you are £60,000. I'm like, well, I have no money. I don't know how I'm going to pay £60,000. So I try and get out of it and I try and uh, talk to my lawyer. My lawyer doesn't want help. So I say, all right, I'm going to change lawyers as well. Sorry, I'm, I'm off. He's like, that's cool. You owe me £40,000. I'm like, wait, a week ago I owed no one nothing. Now I owe £100,000 to two, just two companies. What is going on? 
um, I've managed to negotiate deals with both those people now. Bless them. Thank you very much. We're done. Don't worry about it. And I'm digging myself out of the hole. I'm not technically bankrupt now. I'm just in debt. Uh, but I have future earnings that will offset that. But that's the thing that you need to know that. I don't know if you think that I'm doing well, but I thought I was doing well. <laughs> and then overnight, I'm like, oh, I'm not doing well at all. But it's going to be fine. And I truly believe that. And I think this also comes back to what I was saying about a team. It's like, get your team straight. Like, know that you can trust your lawyer. Know that you can trust your accountants. Know that they're not going to present you with the same bill they're presenting Mariah Carey. Because you probably shouldn't have worked with the accountants that are working with Mariah Carey. That made my mistake. But, um, and over all of this, watching like a hawk should be your management saying, you know, maybe they are too expensive for us. Or maybe we shouldn't do this. And I, I, I take responsibility. I take partial responsibility for what happened. But I also feel like my ex-manager probably should have. Anyway, just be careful. That's all I'm saying. Could everybody give a big hand to Kainis for talking today? Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we have done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Paris. But we do events around the world throughout the year. In fact, we may just be doing an event near you pretty soon. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really does help other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening.